Open Source relies on listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The fourth of Dmitry Shostakovich's 15 symphonies marks a low point in a tortured life. Just as clearly, it marks a rallying point of courage, the start of a recovery in artistic fortunes that are still rising this summer of 2018, four decades into a composer's immortality. It is this fourth symphony from 1936 that Joseph Stalin ordered not to be performed. Pravda delivered the death threat, mocking Shostakovich's sound as grunts and hoots, muddle not music, said the editorial headline. So Shostakovich IV was never played in Russia until 1960, after Stalin had died, after Shostakovich had been browbeaten into joining the Communist Party, which he detested. The symphony has been recorded anew this spring in Anders Nelson's award-winning Shostakovich series with the Boston Symphony. Maestro Nelson's take on the Fourth Symphony has the air of an event around it, a revelation. One of the rear major places. We have been listening in on his rehearsals and engaging the maestro on Shostakovich since March. Yeah, thank you. That's nice. So it's a horizon. You see through the, all the darkness, you see this light. Yes? 191 could be. People would think it's crazy, but I would call him a Russian Mozart, you know, if I, if I could compare in a way, because because if you think about Mozart, we think about a genius, of course, and about the composer whose every piece, practically every piece he composed, is a masterpiece. Mm. And I think with Shostakovich is the same. I mean, 15 symphonies, all very strong and great masterworks on their own, composed different times and different um, influences, of course. Or you have operas, or you have ballets, or you have chamber music, which is absolutely amazing, or piano music, or... Piano music is fantastic. Yeah, you have piano music and the film music or theater music. Everything you hear, this is a touch of genius. Of course, in the meantime, you cannot ignore or you cannot pass unnoticed the times he lived in and the challenges he had to face living in Soviet Union and that as we know I mean practically hugely influenced his life and uh, and could have killed him because you know of the Stalin regime and and after the Lady Macbeth opera as we know he was accused to be a non-Soviet and a wrong composer with a wrong ethic and wrong ideals and... Politically incorrect, shall we say. Politically, politically incorrect. And, and then from one day to another, he became an enemy, practically, or a, a shame of the country, you know. Uh, and uh, like people told, they were greeting him 
So, you know, it's just normal. And the next day, people were not knowing how to react because the people didn't say any more hello. They didn't greet him. They were trying to avoid him. And he, so it must have, of course, been terrible. It must have been huge influence. go right to that story which a lot of people don't know but in 1936 he's got a, in effect a hit show at the Bolshoi Lady Macbeth it's something like Hamilton shall we say in New York in the case of Shostakovich and Stalin Stalin is in a box in the wings and they know it he leaves after the second act and then the next day there's an editorial denouncing Shostakovich it's incredible but it really in that society it meant he could get shot yes he's 30 years old at the time can we imagine the pressure on that man's genius, but his life, his sanity. It's difficult to imagine because, I mean, I lived in Soviet Union and my education started there, but at the age of 12, practically, it was collapsing. And also the last years were not as dramatic as in Stalin's times. He had this little suitcase ready each night. He was ready that he would be asked to leave or go to Siberia or go to a camp or somewhere or simply being shot somewhere and uh, so he had this suitcase with the most necessary things and he was actually he was ready every night to be sent out or to be killed. Julian Barnes built his Shostakovich novel, The Noise of Time, around that suitcase scene from the 1930s. Shostakovich sitting by his apartment elevator night after night. I mean, just his nerves would have held him up, waiting for his executioner, out in the hallway so as not to involve his wife and daughter. And it's, of course, not only just a college, it was, unfortunately, a normal thing that, particularly intelligence, they were simply destroyed one by one or and sent out, and that's, and therefore, I think, he, of course, lived in a fear. But in the meantime, you know, he was a shy person. He was nervous. Yeah. And you would not associate that person to write maybe such a symphonies which are talking about such a gigantic vision of, of life and what the inner strength of his soul and of his thoughts that he, despite everything, he compose such genius works. I'm interested in your Shostakovich, including uh, the writer of trumpet lines that you played as a boy, but also I have a sense that you identify with him, that there's a personal feeling between the two of you. It would be absolutely arrogant for me to say, <laughs> to say that, but being shy, I don't know, I somehow identify myself with him. But of course, I am nothing and I'm just a 
but it feels that what he's talking in his symphony is what his soul is saying I feel it's very close to me and I'm sure it's close to millions of people and each of us or each listener each conductor each musician have the intimate line which is very personal what I feel with Shostakovich there is this link which it's certain modesty talking about all the time himself and, and his problems he's talking about humanity civilization and of course he's talking oh, there are some things which are connected with his life as well but he's not egoistically complaining in his music which also could there are composers who are talking about themselves and it is very ingenious composers as well but I think when you hear Shostakovich music and even you hear the grotesque or sar- sarcasm which is very much in his music and, and obviously he was very influenced from Gustav Mahler as well you know with this sarcastic grotesque and this is very he clearly hear the influence but with Shostakovich he never insults you in, with his music I don't know this is says something he can be powerful he can be protesting he can be depressed he can be victorious but he never insulting I don't know even in the seventh symphony where he is a really I mean this tom pom pom pompy it's like he's in spite of everything he's saying we will stand up and our city will again blossom and our culture and our human being of humanity will, will win you know Seventh Symphony, it it has a patriotic feeling, but it is not, it is not a feeling of let's take weapons and let's fight with the weapons against. He is hoping for humanity. I'm just guessing about the affinity with your own mind. You're a very powerful conductor, as he is indeed a very, sometimes very noisy, marchy, emphatic composer. But there is also a shyness there. He didn't like Toscanini. Apparently, he thought he was bombastic and uh, an imperial conductor. He didn't like that style of making music. Mm-hmm. Is that somewhere there where you're, I don't know, a Shostakovichian conductor? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just know that I really love his music and I try to be honest, but if Shostakovich would hear me hear the old recordings he might say oh god never ever give this man my symphonies <laughs> I, I, I doubt it I think you're a great gift to Shostakovich in the 21st century I wouldn't be surprised if he would say oh but of course uh, 
I have a belief that, you know, we, we live this life and we all meet after. And I, and, and I'm very curious also to meet Shostakovich next to many other people, but to meet and to ask him really, please tell me what did I get wrong? <laughs> Coming up, whatever is it in the jagged, dark turmoil of Shostakovich that appeals to us listeners, and why now? This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leibniz. This is Open Source. Philip Roth, the late great novelist, got hooked on Shostakovich, the string quartets especially. He wrote of dragging his friend Saul Bellow in a low mood to hear an evening of them in London. They're not designed to lift your spirits, Roth told his pal. They organize your misery. M.T. Anderson, acclaimed for his young adult books, told me the lure into Shostakovich for him at 16 was the man's unconventional candor about the pain people go through, a point that teenagers can grasp. Three years ago, Tobin Anderson, as he's known, published a searing account of Shostakovich and his city under the Nazi siege in 1942. It was titled, Symphony for the City of the Dead. The first time I think I heard him was on a recording uh, that Yo-Yo Ma did of the Shostakovich first cello concerto. And I was just blown away. I mean, I didn't listen to much 20th century classical music. I was not used to dissonance. I was not used to irony in music, really, beyond uh, Depeche Mode. You know, I was a child of the 80s. Suddenly, here was this sort of incredible complexity that at the same time spoke to me very directly. Hmm. His music is dramatic. His music is ironic. His music is angry and passionate. It's neurotic. It's all the things a teenager is. <laughs> it's dissonant. It's jagged. It's angular. It's mysterious. It's sudden. But so are we. <laughs> and I don't just mean that as a teenager, but I mean also you can see music as a way of either soothing all of those jagged irregularities in us or a way of depicting them. And I think that Shostakovich is having a revival because people right now are saying, I need something to express things that I'm feeling that are not easy to deal with. And I should say that that's one of the important things about Shostakovich historically in his own period. Shostakovich is writing at a time during the terror famines of the early 1930s when there is tremendous pressure on the Soviet citizen to be silent about what is going on around him. And Shostakovich, in a sense, gave his own fellow Russian citizens the chance instead to mourn together all of those things that they couldn't talk about. You know, there are these stories that if your husband or wife is taken away in the night by the secret police, you have to go into work the next day with a smile on your face because otherwise they will know that you are a dissident. And you have populations just being decimated by the government needlessly. And at the same time, there's no ability to talk about it. There's no ability to be public about it. I mean, Stalin's tagline for this period in history literally was, everything is getting merrier, comrades. Speak of the siege of Leningrad, as it was called then, and the incredible, strange piece of art that Shostakovich made of it, under siege himself. 
Yeah, well, so here's Shostakovich trapped in the beginning of that siege as the Germans surround the city. So he's standing on top of the Leningrad Conservatory wearing giant asbestos gloves, supposed to pick up incendiary bombs. Mm. There he is up on this roof. He is writing this piece that records, in a sense, the Germans surrounding that city. And he then eventually manages to escape with his family. So to me, what is incredible about that piece is that it gave the people of Leningrad hope because it gave them a way to understand themselves as heroes rather than as victims. So there they were starving to death, starving to death to the point where they were literally eating each other to stay alive. And yet, when, for example, figures from Leningrad were flown outside of the city to speak on the radio to the Soviet people, they were specifically told, do not mention starvation. We don't want people to know that that city is so close to capitulating and falling. And you write, Tobin, that Shostakovich went on the radio to say, my friends, I'm working on a symphony about this. Yeah, he, he specifically says to them, I am saying this so that you know life goes on in some senses as usual. And this is a piece that was then performed in Leningrad itself. So what they did is they pulled together a scratch orchestra of starving, emaciated, soot-covered musicians, and they performed this piece in this auditorium while the Red Army bombed the Germans on the opposite side of the city to try to draw German fire away from the concert hall. The astonishing thing for the people of Leningrad was this feeling that finally they were being portrayed as people in charge of their own destiny, as people who were going to be victorious. And so at the same time, this symphony was broadcast through the streets, it was broadcast through the radio, and across no man's land towards the German lines. Years later, the conductor of that performance, that Leningrad performance of the Leningrad Symphony, had some German tourists approach him. And they said, we were actually soldiers in the trenches over there when you performed this piece. We were there and we heard it. And they said, the night that we heard the Leningrad Symphony was the night we knew we would never take the city of Leningrad. Oh my God. This is why I think that Shostakovich is so powerful because it's an instance where music had the power to change history. Tobin Anderson, you've immersed yourself in the man and the music. What's your own truth on the Shostakovich question? Shostakovich was a composer who wrote music because he couldn't speak. Um, and he wrote music so that those who could not speak, the millions of people around him who could not talk about their truth, could have an outlet where, in fact, truth was being rebuilt and was being sung back to them by a master. M.T. Anderson is perhaps best known for the astonishing life of Octavian Nothing. His virtuoso account of Shostakovich is Symphony for the City of the Dead from 2015. Elizabeth Wilson is the cellist, English-born, who came to Russia in the early 1970s and fell under Shostakovich's spell in his last years. When he died in August 1975, she embarked on a fantastic project of collecting a lifetime of impressions in letters, interviews, sketches from friends, lovers, rivals, players, an incomparable source book called Shostakovich, A Life 
remembered. In conversation, we asked Elizabeth Wilson to begin with the composer's homework on his fourth symphony. In 1934, Shostakovich thinks, I must write my credo, my compositional credo, and he mm. wanted to write a big symphony. And he thought that this was a time to do it. And interestingly enough, at that time, they had a, a big conference, which was about Soviet symphonism. In 1934, they introduced a policy or dogma of socialist realism which was okay for literature, you could explain what it was up to a point, but in music, nobody knew what it was. And so they were looking for a style that would be recognizably realistic, socialist, and all the other things. The person who suggested to all the Soviet composers what style it should be was Ivan Solotinsky. That was Shostakovich's greatest friend mm. and enormous influence on him. He suggested Mahler would be a wonderful example because Mahler was democratic, his music was popular, came from the streets, it's yes. song-based, all the rest of it. What a wonderful model for Soviet composers. Now, Shostakovich adored Mahler, and that prompted him to write a symphony in the Mahlerian model, if you like. And very much the model was the second symphony of Mahler, the C minor resurrection symphony. Elizabeth, help us hear that symphony. What are your favorite passages and what do they tell you? I mean, there are many moments which are wonderful. And if you think of the opening of the symphony, which is really very violent, almost grotesque, but very recognizable where the theme comes from. And it's kind of brutal almost, I would say. I think it's a sort of kaleidoscope of passages. Some of them are, are dance-like, some yes. of them are sort of grotesque, ironic. Uh, you know, whatever picture comes to your mind is as good as another picture when you listen mm. to it. I don't think you should search for what he is trying to actually say. But I think what he was trying to do was to use his material in a way that could be changed and changed almost unrecognizably, and then stick it in like a bit like in the cinema, when you have a, you know, you can flash from one subject to another, or you can flash from one time to another. You can be in the past, in the future, in the present. And it's something uh, a bit like that in the symphony. You know, we have to remember the times he was living in. You know, we weren't at the middle of the purges yet, but already in the early 30s, late 20s. So, uh, a lot of repression, a lot of people being arrested for nothing and going to the camps and being in prison and expelled from here and there, people losing work. You know, Shostakovich was very aware of that side of things as well. Right. Ms. Wilson, I, I listen very simple-mindedly, but to three, three levels. I'm thinking of what he's doing with the Russian tradition that he grew up in, the music story, but I'm also thinking of this man in his own Nerves. He was held up by his nerves, Julian Barnes says. But then third, all the political pressures that are bearing down on him. I would say that Shostakovich, to start with, is an extremely sensitive and vulnerable person. At the mm -hmm. same time, he was pretty clever. 
at knowing how to deal with the situation. And yes. to, if you look at see what he wrote about Lady Macbeth at the time, how he justified the opera in ideological terms, Marxist terms even. And in this, he had a very helpful friend, uh, Ivan Solotinsky, who was very clever at this and knew how to, if you like, manipulate philosophy, whether it was Marxist or other philosophy. And Shostakovich would talk about, yes, this is good. We went and played it for the workers and they enjoyed it. And he would explain things like, um, you know, you can go to a factory and you can try and imitate the actual sounds you hear in the factory, but you can also go to the factory and try and imitate or show in your music the bathos of socialist work, the kind of emotions, maybe pride or maybe, you know, incredible dedication to what you're doing. Those are things that can also be displayed and perhaps are more important. Isn't that amazing? Mozart never did that. Brahms never did that. Leonard Bernstein never did that. To go to workplaces and say, hey, uh, these are my, my fellows. Well, it, it, it was the price of being in the Soviet Union. You had to do it up to a point. Hmm. Although I don't think he was trying to say that in the Fourth Symphony. I think he had other things he was trying to say. Elizabeth Wilson, 30, 40 years after the Fourth Symphony, you knew the man familiarly, and I'm dying to know what you made of him. The musician, but the Russian too, and, and the man. Well, um, let's put it into context. I mean, I studied in Moscow from 1964 when I was young. I was just 17. I went there and in the autumn of 64. And, and of course, I went to all the concerts where his music was played, so I saw him lots of times. I did meet him, but I was a young, shy student, and he was mm. an old and not very well person. He was very, very polite mm. and would get up. Even when he was ill and could hardly move, he would get up to shake people's hands. So much so you felt, you know, I better not go near him. I don't want to bother him. But I had the good fortune to be in his house a few times, one time with Benjamin Britten, which was extraordinary wow. because he got the Beethoven Quartet to come along and play his new quartet, which was the 13th Quartet for Britain, and I was allowed to go as a kind of interpreter. Britain and Peter Pierce were so moved. Britain mm. got up and kissed Shostakovich's hand and said, you know, master please. And, and the quartet played it all over again, <laughs> the second time. So, of course, that was extraordinary. The big general question for me, Elizabeth Wilson, after your marvelous book, is why Shostakovich, why are we still listening? Why will the world probably listen forever? Are we listening for the musical genius or the tortured man? Should we separate them or can we hear them together? I think knowing 
the biography of a composer can help inform your understanding of the music. Of course it can. And it's apart from the fact that it can be very interesting. And in Shostakovich's case, it's very a very interesting biography. I think his music stands perfectly well on its own. If you don't know anything mm. about his biography, you can still listen to it. And you listen to the Eighth Quartet and you didn't know it was autobiographical because it quotes from lots of his compositions. But if you don't know that, you would still think it was a marvellous work. You have to remember that Shostakovich probably in, by 1948 was a frightened man. In 1936, he showed a lot more courage. I think maybe also his wife died. His wife was a very courageous woman, um, Nina Bazar, and she really helped defend him. When she wasn't there, he felt sort of hopeless and unable. There was nobody to defend him. He was meant to be defending his children. Mm. You know, that was a way. You know, one knows that he suffered tremendously, and that's why he wrote the Eighth Quartet as a kind of suicide quartet, a, a minor requiem for himself. And that's why he quoted his own name and all his music, because he could have gone away after that and you know, not written anything more. such a story of the confrontation with depression and, and paralyzing fear, and at the same time, these defeats. There's no worse story in all of these books, it seems to me, than Stalin ordering him, obviously threatening him, that he had to go to a cultural congress in New York in the Waldorf Astoria in 1948, and he did under every kind of uh, reluctant protest, but he read a denunciation of the man he worshipped, Igor Stravinsky. Yes. When he was going to America, above all, he wanted to see his hero, Stravinsky. And he ended up saying, no, this man is the outstanding example of the artistic perversion of the modern world, meaning the West. You know, he was a, a man to himself. He not not easy to define. And he was often, how shall I say, he was often quite contradictory in what he did and what he said. But let's all look in the mu music. The music tells most about Shostakovich. It's the one thing he really, really cared about. Oh, of course, he cared about his family, his friends, but, you know, the music was a repository of his thoughts and of his feelings and, if you like, of the, of the age that was around him, what surrounded him. I think that's all there. And there's so much humour and so much irony and so, much, so many wonderful things, so... That, that, that gives us all hope, I think, that somebody could survive all of that and be a great artist too. That's a fantastic, fantastic thing. Julian Barnes writes at the end of his book that Elizabeth Wilson gave him his best material. He says, if you haven't liked mine, read hers. So glad we did.
Coming up, a memoir of playing Shostakovich in his apartment near the Kremlin. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. When Russians play Shostakovich, all kinds of games turn up in the music. Jokes, street talk, winks, laughter through the tears, curses, all written into the score. Valerie Kuchment, among the first violins in the Boston Symphony, learned it from the master in Moscow. Her trio with piano and cello had won a big prize in a German competition. Back home, their prize was an invitation to play Shostakovich for Shostakovich. Uh, so we visited him in his apartment, which was not far from Kremlin, in center of the Moscow, and played for him his piano trio. He written it 1944, mm. during Second World War. It's about the war. There are Jewish themes there, horrors of war. When you walked into the room, when he sat with you, what were your impressions? Very quiet, always kind of scratching his, uh, you know, forehead, mm. very weak. Uh, some orchestra players remembered that whenever they performed his symphony, after performance, he would, he would get up and leave <laughs> without oh. going backstage or saying anything. Mm. That, he was like that. Um, he was the most open with his friend, that's Isaac Glickman. Yes. When he wrote him lots of letters. But you can really hear and feel all the emotions mm. in his music, if it's performed correctly. <laughs> so I guess he liked it. At the end, he, although he couldn't play piano anymore, he was very ill, he asked us to play with him the beginning of last movement of that trio, which was kind of the simplest, the, the same repeated chords mm. in both hands. So he sat down with me and the cellist and played first uh, two pages of uh, Last Movement. That was very touching and moving and, and memorable. After, in effect, he'd retired. Yeah, yeah, of course, well. yeah. He was already not young and very ill. And we asked him if he is willing to write another trio <laughs> that we could perform. Write me it, a trio, Mr. That's, that's right, yeah. He, we didn't get any definitive answer. But a year later, in uh, 1971, he wrote his last symphony, number 15.
there are like military marches there. There is everything there. There is a William Tell leitmotif there. There are parts very funny. You can hear like drunken Russians dancing and swearing. He actually could write the swearing Russian in music. <laughs> How do you write a Russian swear that an orchestra can play? So there is one swear that means F your mother, exact translation. <laughs> so he has many pieces of his. Exactly. It's exactly sound of that. It was never written anywhere about it officially, but musicians in Russia, they know about it, and they always try to make it pronounced. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Just a laugh, I think. I don't know. Hmm. He described real Russian. They always swear, always swear, and always drunk, most of them. What are the passions in this music? The culminations, I mean, high points, often very tragic, very dramatic. Mm. You have to play it in full to feel it. Mm. When our pianist, Viktor Derevyanka, heard the premiere performance, he started thinking, okay, so he didn't write the piano trio, but I can transcribe this symphony for piano trio with percussions, which he did. He consulted Shostakovich himself, and, and uh, he liked it, I guess, everything. So, And we premiered it in Moscow in 1972, in September. And he came for, to our dress rehearsal to hear it. And Victor remembers uh, him saying, why did I write it for the orchestra? <laughs> you like that form better? That's what he said. I'm not sure he was serious. I think the most beautiful is the last movement, I would hmm. say, in symphony itself and in, in transcription. So that's basically his last symphony. He felt that's almost the end. And he's like looking back at his life. Mm. Well, it's joys and tragedies. There's everything in this symphony. But the very end, strings like holding this one note and, and percussions playing. And you hear like his heart is beating, beating slower, slower, mm. and like his life is slipping away. And like at the end, like you just feel like he's dying.
it's so very powerful it's so even difficult to hear it's really heartbreaking music Valerie Kutchman brings us back to her conductor in Boston today. Andres Nelson's, to her taste, alongside Kurt Mazur and Leonard Bernstein, unlocks the full force of emotion, love of family, fear of death, and Siberia. It's all coded into her beloved Shostakovich. The last of his works, last few years, are, it's such a deep, such a dark music and he goes in his composition techniques so deep somewhere in the fields which are very far from this world and I think of course from one side we know he was ill he was sick he was afraid to die as we all do and he was thinking about the eternal questions you know what happens after that and and he was not a obviously in Soviet Union Officially or legally, or I said, there was no God. It was only party, you know, <laughs> Stalin and party. So it was. Shostakovich was not religious, but he was searching for what should be beyond all this dramatism and all this catastrophe in life. There should be something after that. And you can even feel in it in each symphony, there is this other celeste sound or the major in one chord or something you feel. Yes, it, there is, a, and it's it's very touching. Stick with this contest with Stalin. Shostakovich was not above putting jokes and barbs and language almost into his music. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, uh, in the 10th symphony, uh, Shostakovich is using his own, own initials and he uses the theme pom 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 And the symphony ends pom pim pom So it's almost saying, I am alive, me, I am alive, you are dead. This tyrant is dead, you know, and yeah, we made it, we made it, you know, so there is a way to fight through the music without weapons. And there is a way where in a naive, of course, way, there are so many million people were killed and this is a disaster, of course. But of course, after the 10th symphony, it changes. And then he again, he realizes that actually the evil of life is still there. And is it, is it over? Yeah. Russian friends of mine say, thank Andres Nelsons for playing that Russian music so beautifully. Oh. People are very grateful to you for rescuing this man in a Russian spirit. And they notice. They also sort of suggest to me that you have to be Russian to get this music. There's something that non-Russians aren't getting here. Can you explain it? What Russians hear, and maybe I don't. I, I don't know. It opens actually a, a wide question in a way. But I understand that there is, of course, there is a people who, maybe thanks God, have lived in a certain comfort 
it's maybe more difficult to understand the depth of, let's say, Jostakovich music in a way, because there is a lot of dark sides or irony, which is laughing about these dark sides, which to some people might l seem like a very fun and funny and nice music. But actually, it's a huge sarcasm and huge grotesque. It's, there is a humor for Shostakovich, but that humor is is a little bitter. It's it's never just humor. So I can agree that you need a certain life experience to understand one or other composer better. That's true. I, I mean, but whether you only can understand Russian music if you are Russian, or if you understand German music, if you're German, it's a big question. It's, it's yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Let me just say, my two favorite Shostakovich performers are you with the symphony and Keith Jarrett playing the Preludes and Fugues. Have you heard Keith Jarrett, who the world thinks of him as a jazz pianist, but he plays the Shostakovich beautifully. I think it shows that this music is universal I mean, and it's somehow more global, I think, and it's not so local, you know, it's... Uh, I think, therefore, it's, that shows, I think, that these geniuses who, time to time, born, they, I think, for the whole world, somehow. <laughs> they have this mission from God or from somewhere to influence our souls and our minds to... and to start thinking about the questions. It feels like a Shostakovich wave is rising in the world. I wonder, are you riding that wave or are you churning it up? I'm simply absolutely privileged to perform and record these symphonies with Boston Symphony Orchestra. And, and I, I'm, I'm a Shostakovich lover and that's all. I'm, I, I, don't, don't be too modest. You are the conductor that many millions of people will hear defining Shostakovich for them. What do you call the Andres stamp on that sound? What would you like people to hear, to feel in your recordings? The wide range of, of things which Shostakovich is talking about, and also the human aspect of Shostakovich and of the circumstances he lived and the things he was talking about. The, the, it should not always sound terribly scary. It's not always, I think. It is a lot of moments which is so scary that you you have the cold shivers, you know. Mm -hmm. But there are also moments where it's comforting me as well. Mm -hmm. This man who lived in this time, experienced these terrible, disastrous moments, but still he managed to bring through the hope. We shouldn't say, oh, you know, it is a very joyful music always. 
it is not always joyful and it's and it's okay and it's good but i think it's important that this music let people think deeper than just the upper layer of the thing that there is always somewhere in a world where maybe somebody needs help and i think through music we can uh, the music really helps both ways it helps to address the problem and it also helps to to heal and to comfort andres nelson thank you so much for the music you brought to all of us and for this conversation oh thank you so much great great pleasure talking about such a genius composer The British novelist Julian Barnes suggests a last word. In a remarkable non-fiction novel, The Noise of Time, Julian Barnes put himself inside Shostakovich's skin. What he knew was that approaching 70, Shostakovich was sick and feeble, that he had moments suspecting he'd been a dull and mediocre composer after all, no matter that he knew differently. So he hoped that death would liberate his music from his life and let it stand for itself on its merits as music. It would belong, in the end, to music. By now, all of that has come to pass. Thank you, Anders Nelsons, Elizabeth Wilson, Valerie Kutchment, and M.T. Anderson. Sarah India Leiden gets an assist. Thank you, Boston Symphony, for the fourth symphony recording with Deutsche Grammophon. Our show is produced by good listeners all, Connor Gillies, Zach Goldhammer, Homa Sorabi Donay, and the artist known as Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer of many musics. Mary McGrath is our conductor. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source.